kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? You're listening to episode 29 of Love That Album. Morris Bustinski speaking to you. I'm so glad that you uh, chose to download and listen to um, another episode of the show. And I'm, I've been looking forward to this episode for quite a while. Uh, and I'm going to go through all four members of the troupe, otherwise known as the List Music Podcast. Some weeks ago, we had Ricardo talking with me about The Doors. Uh, and the next member of the List Music Podcast troupe, begged to be part of that conversation, but I said, no, 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 you'll get, you'll get your own chance. I'm talking about VK Lynn. Welcome very much to love that album, uh, VK. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Mm, it's wonderful to have you. Now, um, I, I'm, I'm sure that there's some crossover between the people who might be listening to my podcast and yours, but for the benefit of those who haven't uh, caught on to uh, the List Music podcast yet, give us a bit of a description about uh, that show and also about your own background. Um, the list is kind of a um, bastardized Adam Carolla-esque sounding mess that, um, where four of us sit around and talk about the top five of blank, whatever the topic is for the week, um, the top five workout songs, the top five stripper songs, the mm. top five songs to eat scrambled eggs to, you know, whatever. <laughs> that that um, one's coming, I'm sure. You know, do not be surprised because we usually tape late at night when we are all, you know, tired and grumbly. And sometimes that leads to the best things, especially if Ricardo's any on any kind of like medicine for any kind of illness. Well, that's just pure gold right there. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. look, I, I, I'm pretty sure that the reason that you guys got second best, it should have been first best, but you got on that list of the best music podcasts uh on the web at the moment was just because of the rapport that you guys have. It's not supposed to be uh, academic down to minutiae or anything like that, but, you know, just the rapport, you, it's where you take the discussion of each song and the personal stuff that you bring it in, and that's why I've been, you know, absolutely addicted uh, every week, uh, and, you know, where I get rather disappointed where, you know, hang on, it's it's Wednesday or Thursday or whatever it is, and, you know, where's my episode of, uh, of the List Music podcast? And, uh, Ricardo, get some regularity in. Eat some bran. Yeah, we well, we have definitely, um, there's been a few times that Jenny said that, too. She's like, Ricardo! And he's like, well, but, you know, I've got all this, and it's it's hilarious, because as soon as the ca- the the recording equipment goes off, it just kind of continues on in that mm. same way, you know? Yep. It's like, so, Ricardo, what about this? Well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so it's a kind of like we just turn on the machines for a minute, and this is the four of us talking, and then we just turn them off. So you kind of get to hear us, you know, just sniping at each other or talking or chatting or whatnot. It's, it's very interesting that we do have the rapport that we do because initially, and this is a funny story that I've never told before, um, Ricardo and I didn't really get along that well before this. Oh, really? 
Well, it's a funny thing. Ricardo and I are very similar, which yeah, I don't know if you pick up when you listen to the podcast, but we really are. We're kind of the same monster. Mm. And so we didn't like each other because we don't particularly like ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and so we kind of thought that the other didn't like the other. Like I thought Ricardo didn't like me and he thought I didn't like him. So as a result, we didn't really like each other. But my husband, you know, the great peacekeeper and whatnot, he is, you know, madly in love with Ricardo and, and I would assume madly in love with me. And... Um, <laughs> So he's been trying to bridge that gap for a while. And when Ricardo decided he wanted to do this podcast, he actually contacted Sean, my husband, and said, hey, do you think she would do this? And he said, why don't you contact her? And so we started, we kind of tentatively were like, okay, we'll try this. We'll try this. Mm. And then before we knew it, we're like, hey, we like each other. Like, look right. at this. Oh, my gosh. It's been all this crazy, you know, like circling cautionary stuff all this time and it's been stupid like so now now we're buddies now we're buddies so do you think something about the format of the show might have helped that i mean if it had been something different I mean, everyone loves a list and it really does expand a whole lot of conversation there you know for good or for bad uh, do you think the format of that might have helped the friendship Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think we found that, you know, like I said, we had more similarities than we thought. And also, um, I think Ricardo is a really good leader of the podcast. I mean, he does a really good job of keeping things moving, you know, facilitating conversation. I mean, he, in his, in his very unique Ricardo way, he's very charming and he's interesting to listen to. And so I gained a lot of respect for him by doing the podcast. And I was like, yeah, yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. I'll follow him forward into the into the fray. Mm. Let's do it. Um, interestingly enough, um, Juan, who I had never met up until then, we immediately started fighting. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it makes for entertaining listening, though. Yeah, uh, well, you know, and we've actually sorted out a lot of our issues, too. So <laughs> mm. <laughs> I, maybe I'm just a difficult human being. Maybe it's me. Maybe it is you. Know, Troublemaker Dave, you. You better hang up on me now. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm counting on you to argue with me for a good chunk of this show. Otherwise, it's going to be boring as batshit. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. No, no, no. Fuck that. Let's, 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 let's go unto the fray. Let's do it. And of course, your, um, uh, and your relationship with Jenny. Obviously, you, I, I get the impression that you look on her like your little sister. I, yeah. Well, first of all, she is actually physically really small. She's like a <laughs> dog. She she'd be a toy you know if she were a car she'd be a compact yeah. she's she's very little and um she's just the sweetest thing she's the sweetest thing in the world and she's so upbeat and happy and I, not to say that i'm negative but i'm just not generally like a naturally smiley kind of person and so i admire that in her and i'm always like oh that's so sweet that she's such a happy person and so i feel very protective of her in, in strange yes. ways yes. so yeah kind of like a mom thing you know this is what happens when you put an old woman in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're still younger than some of us, so, so just, well, just watch it, young lady. Actually, I think you rather fancied the fact that I called you young lady when I appeared on the list, and you said, oh, he called me young, he called me young lady. Yes, and yes, I, I was like... Just because I was an old man. Chatter on, son, chatter on. <laughs> All right, so give us a little bit of a background, for once again, for the people who haven't had the good fortune yet to listen to the list about um, your own musical endeavors because it seems like you've got your fingers in you know, a million pies. I do. Um, I'm one of those people I, I just like to take on a lot of projects and I'm also the 80 Annie of rock and roll in that I'm just a girl who can't say no. <laughs> uh, and so I was doing I was doing indie rock kind of a blues based thing for 
a lot of years um, solo and going through bands and whatnot. And then in the last two or three years, I really decided that I needed to pursue the metal, which metal's always been in my blood. It's always just been uh, this part of me that I didn't really address because I hadn't hadn't really come across a lot of women who wanted to do the same thing in the States here. And um, then I discovered um, Nightwish. <laughs> and Nightwish kind of opened, like, so many doors for me and so many, like, my eyes just were immediately open. And that just took me down a rabbit hole of symphonic metal and female-fronted bands. And the next thing I knew, I was knee-deep in all of it. And um, my band, Vita Nova, um, is an interesting project in that I co-write all the songs with a producer, composer, guitarist in Milan. And we just Skype back and forth, we send files back and forth, and we've recorded an entire record that way that's coming out next month. Yay! Yay! So, yep. so next, so October. You don't, you, you're not, your mind's still not in August, is it? It's not, no, it is October. Oh, it's okay. happening. Right. It's happening in October. Um, we've got a, a lot of surprises coming with that, but um, one of the big things is that we got together just a bunch of guest artists from all over from Greece from Germany from you know Chicago <laughs> to be on this record because one of the things I wanted to show is that women can work together I think men sometimes have this fantasy that if you put two or three you know strong powerful beautiful talented women together you're going to get a cat bite and they can just sit down with a bag of chips and watch um, and that's not the case at all um, Eve's Apple is a group that I, I helped found, and it's basically 48 women from 48 different metal bands all over the world working together, loving each other, supporting each other, and all of our guest artists came from that group. Wow. And it's just, I'm really excited. It's a, it's a very unique project, and um, I'm also working on a project here in L.A., which uh, I'm not allowed to talk about quite yet, but suffice it to say, it's, oh, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm really I'd never be able to tell. Yeah, um, it's it's you know it's some names that you might know, mm -hmm. and I'm really excited about this record because it's going to be something I think quite quite unique. And, and uh, this is more of a technical thing, but you know when the uh, Vita Nova project comes out and your this other unspeakable project comes out, uh, I mean, are you of um, the, the the physical format? Are you you know sort of planning on releasing it on CD and vinyl, or will it just be download? How do you view that? Um, Vita Nova is initially going to be put up right away for download because that's that's you know get get the music out to the people right away. Yep. We are however planning on a physical release we have digipack cds designed we have a wonderful designer in mexico um i'm gonna i'm gonna botch his name terribly josue um galvin mm -hmm. and he actually did the design that you see as vita nova's logo right now when you go to our facebook page and um he's doing all the design for the cd um there's a label in italy named rnc that is going to be putting it out, distributing it, sending it to their people and whatnot. So we're going to have a European release. And um, hopefully, you know, somebody in the States will pick it up and give it its due because I think people are going to be really impressed with this. It's very big, epic music. And um, it's, I mean, my, my partner Federico Salerno in Milan has done a bang up job. I mean, the boy just doesn't sleep. He just yeah. doesn't. So I, I remember you saying on the list that there have been moments where you thought, you know, we have to end this. We have to end this song. Um, you know, he'd always come up with, you know, I have another idea, VK, and I have another idea, and he'd always be adding stuff to it. But sometimes, you know, do you feel that you know, he's 
not taken the time to sort of stand back and look at the painting as it were and see you know, that it's finished? Not at all, not at all, because I am just as guilty of this as he is. Um, in fact, the the final song that got added was my fault. Um, I came home and I had this idea. I know, this. here's what happens. I came home and I said, you know, an interesting three-part Gregorian chant a cappella would be interesting. Oh, yeah. I'm interested. Yeah, who has that thought? I don't know. But I pull out my recording stuff and I start singing this thing that I had written this poem and I blah 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 and I send it all off to him and God bless him this is why we're partners I said what do you think of this and he said yes let's do it and before I knew it he had it picked apart added strings to it and bang and it's this great great piece now that we use um, I, I don't want to say because uh, but it definitely um, makes the it ties the record together it he actually always is stepping back and looking at the big picture and sometimes he's the one talking me down saying okay. okay we need to relax now so it's kind of, it's interesting he'll he'll be the one who's more like you know what we need here accordion and i'm like okay and i'm the one who's like hey you know we should have a song about this so i'm kind of the word nerd and he's the sonic nerd yep. so between the two of us we both could keep pushing but we tend to pull each other in and say okay let's save that for the next record and let's do this here and let's so yeah it's a really good partnership i swear if we were on the same continent we'd have a double album done by now because both so, ha of us so have you met him face to face no we just skype we just skype and um it's, it's amazing. so incredible the day and age that we live in, isn't it? I mean, I just sort of think it's it's a marvelous thing that you know you and I can you know chat over a Skype line and record, and we have like a radio show of sorts. But you know, you're recording music, and that's that's hard enough when people are in the same room. I know, I know, and we can get on Skype for hours. It's it's really bizarre that on the other side of the world, I found a very like-minded <laughs> partner. And so I, I had a crazy idea the other day, which I again, it's a secret, and it will be out soon. But I had this crazy idea, and I emailed him the whole thing, and I said, "What do you think?" And he wrote back, "I think you're crazy. Let's do it." I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> this is why. This is why." I, I, um, look for, I look forward to the world tour and the release. We are we are hoping for it because it yeah we have big plans. Mm. All right. Well, at the uh, thirteen and a half minute mark, it's it's probably the latest time that I've ever done this where I've actually got to announce what it is that we're going to be talking about. Normally, I tend to do it in the opening minute or so, but um, I've just been so fascinated listening about your projects that I've, I've completely forgot to do that. So, um, I think if, you know. A month or two back when um, we actually hit upon the idea of doing this show together and I said to you right well send me 10 albums that you'd be happy to cover any of them and I'll pick one and I think actually what we did was you sent me 10 and I said well look, I'll be happy with any of these five and then you came back and said no nope, here's the one and it turns out to be Sting's 10 Summoner's Tales um, so I, I truth be known I never thought that I'd find someone who i cover um, a Sting album with. I always sort of thought, oh yeah, might, you know, we'll probably cover a, a Police album at some stage, but oh, there's a whole bunch of things to say about Sting, and um, this this is probably, I mean, th there's been stuff that he's done over the last, I don't know, 20 years or something that I wouldn't probably give the time of day to, and yet this, for me, is um, a really impressive album in terms of songwriting craftsmanship and arrangements. It's not perfect but but I find a lot of it really fascinating in how he's gone and put this together and I think you know probably because so many people focus on Sting the multi 
you know, media personality that they've tended to you know, not look, not take the step back and look at him as a songwriting craftsman. And he's really, I think, for the most part, on top of his game here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and I will say that this was also an attempt to seduce my mother to finally listen to one of my podcasts. <laughs> ah, right. Okay, well, happy to have her on board. Um, all right, but before we do that, I always like to uh, open up the show um, with asking my guest presenter, what have you been listening to of late? You know, um, I gave some thought to that, and the problem is I've been listening to all the stuff I've been working on because I've got so much stuff to get done. Like, I, I said to someone yesterday, I have miles to go between now and Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so I've been listening to um, new mixes of the Vita Nova stuff. I've been listening to the demo tracks for the record that I'm recording here in L.A., trying to, you know, hone my vocals and figure out, well, what do I want to sing here, what do I want to sing there? So I've been... It sounds really terrible. Listening to a lot of my own music, um, just so that I I can make sure that I do the best possible job I can on the final recordings. So I've just been immersed in that. To Goes be honest, the territory. But okay, like say if you're getting up first thing in the morning and and you're making yourself some breakfast, would you just keep something else on in the background before you start the day and before you start listening to your mixes? Is it just even if it's for background or if it's just something that you think you want to sing along to that's not yourself? Have you been listening to anything, even casually? Well, you know, it's funny. I will I will get a, on a jag for a song, mm. and then it, I just play it all the time. <laughs> and um, my poor husband will tell you, it's ridiculous, because I will find a song, put it on repeat, yeah. Um, he just needs to leave the house at that point. <laughs> That's just going to be on for a really long time. Yeah. Um, I guess in the recent, in recent, you know, I've been listening to a lot of um, After Forever. Um, it's it's symphonic metal. Um, Flora Jansen is the lead singer. She is six feet tall and just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been listening to her because that's a vocalist that I, I really, really enjoy there. Um, so I've been putting her on repeat a good bit um what's that oh it's funny there's an old song this is going to sound very bizarre do you remember that band um shakespeare's sister oh yes okay well there's a song um uh, what's the name of the song i don't care if you talk about me <laughs> that one uh you know what i think i i confess i remember them but I remember them being, they were a band I ignored at the time, I think so. So I'm probably not the one to ask what the song was. Yeah, I wasn't, they didn't really have a lot out, at least in the States and whatnot, but that one song, for some reason, uh, (laughs) I don't know, Mm. it's just, I will dance around the kitchen to it, over and over, and I'm just like, all right, why not? I, I have a friend who's a musician, and he has a very odd, I think, view of of music in that he said that he doesn't listen to anything outside his genre so as not to muddy his creative spirit. And I told him that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard because when you listen to all different types of music, it informs your artistic spirit. It it helps you to find exactly what it is you want to say. And there's something to be taken from all music, even if it's music that you feel like you just downright fucking hate. There's there's something to be taken from it. Like, okay, well, I don't want to do that. Or, oh, well, there's a little interesting progression there. Maybe I could use that. So I think immersing yourself in all kinds of music is really the way to go. Well, no one eats you know, the one type of food for dinner every day, unless, of course, you're my daughter. But, but apart from her, you, know, you don't eat the same type of food every day. 
for dinner. Yeah. So, you know, the variety and, and all that. I absolutely couldn't agree with you more. And actually, you saw your living proof of that because, um, you know, I, I'd gone and looked on uh, YouTube, you know, for a couple of your clips and plus the song that you sent me, which we're going to play in a few minutes. And it's, it, you know, it wasn't symphonic metal, wasn't metal at all. Um, and and you, know, it, you, you sang with, you know, just as much passion as I imagine you do um, your, your you know, uh, beloved symphonic metal projects you know um it, it so yeah there you go you, you don't as you say you don't live inside the vacuum and um you take something from everything and, and give it give it all the passion and probably i guess music would be a lot more interesting if um uh, i guess if uh, or, or uh, certainly i find the more interesting artists are those who can uh dip their toes into all those sorts of waters and not be caught out by the fans for doing that well, you know, um, I at this stage of the game, like I, I understand there are people who have to stick to a certain genre because at the end of the day, the fans are paying their bills. Ain't nobody paying my bills yet. I'll tell you what. And uh, so I've always been of the mind, and and I've been called difficult for this. That the music is what it is. That it, when I was doing blues, that's what I was feeling. I was feeling blues. The the music was blues and the lyrics were blues and so that's what it needed to be and that's where I was but now that I've these last two years everything that's been coming out of me has just been metal and I thought why am I going to push this into a blues box I had even tried after whiskey or water because I had done an interview with a DJ who said we're not going to get whiskey or water part two and I said who wants that and he goes I do I said oh god bless you man but I couldn't do it I would sit down to try to write a blues song and I'm like no I'm done I said what I needed to say I've got something different to say now. And my husband says, well, you know, that's why you're an artist. And I guess it is in that I just I just cannot be made amenable to rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do try sometimes because I feel like maybe commercially my life would be a little easier if I – I did have an A&R guy say, you know, if you would just be cooperative and sing some pop songs, we'd all make a lot of money here. I remember that story. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that on the, on the list and uh... – but, you know, you can wake up happy with yourself in the morning, though, can't you? You, you can. But there are days when you're like, okay, how's this bill going to get paid? Oh, how's this going to happen? And, um, oh, I've got to go to that day job now. When you think to your – I go back to that man's words, and I think if I would just sing some pop music, life would be a lot easier. And I'm like, but would it? Like, it might be easier for a little while, but then you have to live with the choice you made. There's no going back. A, an actor can make a crappy movie, and we'll forgive it. We'll forgive it. Mm. Um but a musician who sells out and or quote unquote sells out and makes a record that they don't believe in, we do not suffer fools gladly. And we tend to not let them live that down. And I just, I I've never been able to do it, you know, for better or worse. It's just not who I am. Well, you know, when, when you're living off the royalties of uh, the, the billion seller that is going to be Vita Nova, then you'll know that you made the right decision. I hope so, man. I hope so. All right. Um, I'll just give a quick rundown of what I've been digging over the last week or two. Now, I've got a couple of new things, and uh, I've gone back to an old classic. Uh, so uh, a, a fellow who's um, on another Facebook music group and is a listener to uh, my podcast, uh, turned me on to uh, a really fantastic album which we're going to cover on the podcast in a few weeks time so I'm not sort of going to go too much into it but it's a, um, a singer called Ray Wiley Hubbard now he's got a new album called The Grifter's Hymnal 
He's uh, originally apparently from Texas, and he's been making records for 40 years. And, of course, I've only just found out about him. Um, but this album, it's sort of, I guess, a mixture of country and blues, but with major nods to early 70s Rolling Stones. Um, it's it's really exciting and, and vital. Um, and he, he covers all sorts of themes in his lyrics. This guy is obviously well-read. Um, he, he covers themes of you know record executives going to hell um, and you know, all sorts of gospel themes. But you, you never get the impression that he's like a full-on religious guy. This is not, you know, God is great or whatever. You know, if that's your bag, that's fine. But that's, I don't think that's his bag. But he sort of just explores uh, themes of gospel on some of these songs just because... It's interesting to him as a songwriter. And look, it's it really fantastic album. The Grifters Hymnal, but I'll be talking about that uh, on the show with John Ross in a few episodes' time. So um, try and track that down, have a bit of a listen to that. Um, I was very excited about a week ago or so uh, when the new album for a guy called Bill Fay came out. Now, Bill Fay uh, is a songwriter who recorded a couple of incredible albums in the early 70s. Um, one which was self-titled. The other one was called The Time of the Last Persecution. And they're both quite different in their way, but he has this... I don't know, I hate using the word quirky. It's, it's not even really valid, but uh, I don't want to use the word interesting because we know what Ricardo means when he says interesting. Um, but he, he, he has this really unique look on life through uh, through his lyrics and his songs are all in fairly simple major keys for the most part but it's the arrangements that make these songs uh, just so endearing and you know, worthy. they just stay in your head I first heard of Bill Fay maybe about 10 years ago funnily enough through an album of demos that had been released called Songs from the Bottom of an Old Grandfather's Clock and I knew even from this album of demos that he was a really you know, special songwriter and he, he's sort of I guess a little bit like um, uh, the author uh, Salinger you know, who'd you know, gone and written a couple of great books and then just completely disappeared but unlike Salinger he's come back after 40 years and it was a really lovely story in the liner notes where it said that the guy who produced his album was you know, like a young guy in his early 30s whose father had played Bill's early albums of the 70s to him when he was like a 10-year-old child and he remembered playing these records all the time and then you know he grew up to become you know a record producer and, and an engineer and the first thing he does is he contacts Bill Fay and says I really think you need to make a new record and I want to be part of it I'll get the musicians and you know you can get some of your old musicians if you want and I'll write the arrangements and and he's come across with this just absolutely beautiful album called Life is People. Uh, just an album of sheer beauty. And I know we've still got about another four or five months left of the year. But if this album isn't my number one album of the year, I'll be very surprised. I have to be coming up with something very special wow. um, uh, for, to, to top this. And the nice thing is one of Bill's champions has been... Uh, Jeff Tweedy, the lead singer and main songwriter of Wilco, he's been playing um, a song of Bill's called Be Not So Fearful in the Wilco live set for years. And he's been you know, telling people, listen to Bill Faye, listen to Bill Faye. And it's quite nice that on this album, Faye covers uh, a song of 
Wilco's, uh, Jesus, etc. And uh, Tweedy comes and sing, shares vocals. Uh, they do a duet on um, one of his songs on the album, which I'll look at the cover to remind myself which one it is. Uh, yeah, a song called This World, a beautiful song, a real highlight of the album. And it almost has a Wilco feel to it in a way. So they've gone and influenced each other. It's really quite nice. So, um, yeah, Bill Fate, Life is People. He deserves a wider audience than he's going to get. So um, if you're listening to this, if everyone who listens to this show uh, buys a copy of the album, well, he'll have at least another five copies sold. So that'll be nice. And um, uh, the the album I've been... Uh, a final album I'll mention that I've been listening to. I've gone back to uh, listening to Paul Simon's Graceland. Um, normally, I'm not a big fan of people who go and record an album release it and then release it time over and over again just to get more money but I it was the 25th anniversary and there I think about a bunch of 7 or 8 demos which aroused my curiosity but I think the kicker for me was that they were making a double disc set with a DVD of a documentary about him recording the album and the huge, the word we use in Yiddish is Bregas, um, that you know, basically covered all, all the, the kerfuffle that went on with the Afri- African National Congress and all the people who objected to Simon um, recording this album and supposedly taking advantage of the musicians who he brought on to take on tour with him and record the album with. And you know, he was saying, look, you know, I'm bringing these people's music to the world. And I said, but you went and defied the United Nations ban and the African National Congress's ban by recording with these musicians. And um, and it's the politics and all that went on at the time as much as the music itself that makes this documentary that comes with the uh, remastered CD um, just an essential purchase, I think so anyway. So, yeah, I've been listening to uh, Graceland a fair bit in uh, recent days, recent weeks. Um, so I don't know whether was that an album that um, ever drew any attention to you? Um, no, sadly not. Um, I'm not a big Paul Simon guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he falls under my respect. Yep. Absolutely respect him. I don't necessarily want to listen to him. Mm. <laughs> I, that's terrible. That's terrible. I'm a terrible human. Um, <laughs> no, no. You, you just you didn't grow up evidently with a, a brother or sister who. Um, pummeled Simon's music down your throat as a, as a child. I think it's just it was inevitable that I was going to grow into uh, being a Paul Simon fan. And Really, to be honest with you, when Graceland came out, and before I knew the story behind it, and I just took it as a, an album on its own merits, I, it, it wasn't my favourite. It wasn't my favourite. I'd liked a lot of what had gone on before, and I thought that the album that he'd recorded before called Hearts and Bones had been unfairly maligned, and I think a lot of the people who... Uh, took him to task for recording Graceland and said, oh, he's obviously like a failing once great songwriter and he recorded this shitty album called Hearts and Bones. And I objected to that. It was, it was certainly a commercially unsuccessful album, but I think it was an artistic, uh, an artistic high. But, you know, um, yeah, no, look, for me, he, he's someone who I, I've grown up with since I was a little boy because yeah, there's, a, there's a big age gap between myself and... Uh, my oldest sister, and she had these Simon and Garfunkel records when you know, I was a four-year-old. I'd just play to death. So, um, so yeah, I've sort of grown up with it. And I don't know, maybe it's the sort of thing you had to have grown up with. It's possible. 
it's possible. I think my mom was a big Simon and Garfunkel kind of person, but um, she she stuck me on a regular diet of Beatles pretty early. Oh well, God bless her for that. And, and I know you are a Beatles fan, so you know tell, we're going to get along famously. Okay, um, what we might do at this stage is go for a quick break. And over the break, um, I'm going to play one of your songs, VK, a song called Sunday. Want to give us a little bit of a background about this? Um, Sunday, I, I'm going to say, um, musically is my most ambitious song. Um, it's for my solo, one of my solo records. And um, I, I really sat down with my guitar and um, just kind of explored more chords than I usually do. Yes. <laughs> In fact, when I took it to my producer, the first thing he says, there's a lot of chords here. <laughs> um, I said, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of chords, but I feel like they're all necessary to say what I need to say. And um, essentially... I mean, it, it, you've, you've gone and achieved something really great here because even if you have supposedly a lot of chords in this, it never sounds needlessly complex. It doesn't sound like you're just putting in a whole lot of chords for the sake of it. It, it just It really tends to flow quite beautifully. Well, thank you. And, and that's, um, that's the thing. I feel like there's an interesting line between, you know, using the, the gifts you have and the skills you have to, to make your point and just showing off. Mm -hmm. And I think some music rides that line where they're like, look what I can do. Look at me and my crazy pentameter, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, you know, gives a fuck, man. Nobody does. Um, and when people are sitting, singing in the shower, they're not singing along to your crazy, you know, half-descended, diminished, motherfucking whatever. <laughs> Sorry, can I say that on this podcast? Oh, no, no, you can't say motherfucker on this podcast. No, no, you can, you can, you can say crazy-ass shit motherfucker, but you can't say just motherfucker by yourself. Awesome. But um, it's I, the thing that the musicians who played with me have complained about is that when they listen to it, they're like, oh, this sounds simple. And then we sit down to play it, and they're like, damn it. It's deceptively simple. They're like, where are you going there? And I'm like, oh, here's where I'm going to the B. They're like, why would you do that? They're like, no, it sounds cool. It's just I wouldn't have thought to do that. And I guess it's I don't have a lot of actually I have almost no formal musical training. So I just do what I feel. I know that sounds touchy feely, all that. ooh, But I really do what I feel and what seems to sound right to me. Yes. And that's kind of how Sunday was born. And I wrote the lyrics basically all about my husband and I, how we both came here to California um, years ago. Both of us had this shiny dream in our minds. And it's never really been what you thought it was going to be when you were 18 years old. And um, But every Sunday, we both make an effort to just spend time with each other and reconnect and reevaluate life and just go, okay, this is where we're at and this is life now. And so we always have Sunday. That's absolutely gorgeous. All right, well, let's give a bit of a listen to it. And after that, uh, VK and I will come back and we'll have a bit of a discussion about all things police and stingian. You're listening to Love That Album with Morris and VK. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. She watches the clock in her mirror she drives the day along Calendar chaos Gather the grains lost Play one more song tonight 
that album podcast episode 29 this time round I'm chatting with VK Lynn Chantus singer all round and co-host of the List Music podcast and we're talking about Sting's album from 1993 10 Summoner's Tales did I actually mention that that was the name of the album I, I don't know maybe I did I can't remember it's too late at night too early over there uh, but before we talk about that album in specific, let's talk about all things Stingian or Policean or wherever you want to take this. So what was your first memory of hearing Sting? Was it as a member of the police or had that all happened before you were um, like you know, listening to lots of pop music? What's, what's your first recollection? My very first uh, recollection of hearing Sting without having seen Sting was... Um, there was an episode of the A-Team where H.M. Murdoch is singing Roxanne, and that is my very first exposure to that. Uh, mm. Oh, gosh, you've got to confess you're watching the A-Team. 
Well, I was a very, I was very little at that point in time. So um, that's, that's where that came from. Now, as I got older, you know, obviously, um, staying in the police and whatnot, I uh, had a chemistry teacher who, who hated me, my, meanwhile, um, oh. but who played the police nonstop during our last period. So I kind of associate um, synchronicity and whatnot with um, Bunsen burners and, you know, chemicals and things like that. Now. Right. Um, but Sting himself, um, I just really, I felt like he was just such a renaissance man. And um, I'm not a huge fan of blondes, but I'd make an exception for Sting. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a huge fan of blondes. And, and, well, I'm, I'm surrounded by blondes in my family. Uh, that'll do it. That'll do it. That, yeah. I, I, apparently, they do have a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, they do. Well, you know, pink pink people have fun too. But oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Anyway, go on. Yeah, but um, I there was a movie actually that didn't do terribly well, The Bride, um, with Sting in it, and um, I remember thinking, my gosh, I love this man. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's it, it, he just does. He's so intelligent, which I enjoy about him. He's so intelligent. He writes lyrics for a reason uh, most of his lyrics have something really clever to say um i just i'm i'm, I'm an all-around sting person i know these years of late he hasn't been the sting that he was but you know the time when i was stung mm. yeah. um look i remember when i was probably in about uh form two or what we now call year eight or what you in america would call the eighth grade i was on uh, I might have been on like a, a bus on on a going with a whole bunch of my classmates to uh, a school camp or something like that, and I think uh, the the first police album at Landos de Moore had you know, recently come out, and Roxanne was the first single. Uh, I listened to a lot of Top Forty radio, but for some reason I hadn't cottoned onto that song yet, which is quite bizarre because I think it was quite heavily played, and every guy on the bus you know they, they they had the radio on and and every guy on the bus started singing Roxanne, which was quite unusual for a bunch of you know 13 14 year old boys to be singing a, uh, an ode to a prostitute and that you know she could just basically take off the lipstick and turn off the red light um but i don't think anyone really knew what they were singing but you know i, I remember that was my first exposure to anything remotely polician and then but really where i first started getting into them properly was i think uh, regatta de blanc came out the following year message in a bottle was the first single and it was all over the place and i just loved the chord structure um and you know being a drummer Stuart copeland just you know, blew my socks off i'd never heard anything like that at the time and i know that's going to cause much distress to any reggae purists out there but i just love what he did blending um his obvious love of reggae with his obvious love of rock but i remember reading that you know he, his uh his father had worked as uh some sort of american diplomat and they spent years in beirut and years going all around the world so he was obviously exposed to all sorts of drummings that weren't drumming styles that weren't necessarily uh, you know, traditional American or traditional Western band drumming style. So um, I, I think that was definitely to his advantage. And uh, he, he came up with this you know, great style of, of, of drumming. That drew me in. But as well, you know, Andy Summers was a, you know, a, a really, in my mind, uh, uh, 
he's not given his dues when you know we keep talking about the great guitarists of nowadays or the last 30 40 years i think andy summers has been really unfairly looked over and i know that like he had spent you know years listening to the likes of Thelonious monk who we did a tribute album to and it's not necessarily he's not necessarily influenced so per se by other guitar players but by musicians of any instrument and you know Thelonious Monk great case in point as a pianist who who did things that he dug and he tried to transfer it over to the guitar and I think very well so it was just the case of the right musicians being together at the right time and bringing what they did to you know this whatever how it goes the sum being greater than the total being greater than the sum of the parts and those but those individual parts were mighty mighty high um but, um, yeah, look, you know, all good things came to an end. And then when Sting went off to do the jazz thing with the Dream of the Blue Turtles a few years later, that was something radically different. Um, was that an album that you got into? See, jazz. Um, jazz is one of those things I just don't like. I just ah. don't like. I tend to, to err on the side of Jimmy Rabbit from The Commitments, you know. <laughs> Jazz is tosser's music. You want to you want to toss off, use that thing in your hand, not your instrument. Exactly, exactly, yes. Was that impressive? Yes. Was that good? That was awesome. That was awesome. I, I always wonder what happened to him. I loved him. He was great. But um, he was a musician himself. Oh, the actor? Yeah. Oh, really? I, I didn't know what he'd done. I, I, I know that I think one of the women playing his, his sister was like a member of the cause or something like that. Oh my! I, well, I know they went and got real, yeah, quote unquote, real Irish people. They just went and got kids off the street for that yes. movie. But, but that's a horse of a different color. But um, yeah, <laughs> I'm a jazz fan. I just, I it just drives me crazy. It actually physically makes me angry. Like I don't know why, but it's just like, just get to the point. I, <laughs> like Shakespeare said, brevity is the soul of wit. So stop r- rattling around with your saxophone. Just get on with it. Oh, oh gosh. Well, yeah, I, I think there are probably a lot of uh, rock rock players, rock guitarists who could, you know, take a leaf out of Shakespeare's book as well. I mean, you know, how many times have you had to sit through a guitar solo that went for, you know, ten, fifteen minutes that wasn't that wasn't rock in nature? Stage while it's happening. I've spent so many beers waiting for guitar players to finish solos, let me tell you. <laughs> oh yeah. So you know, you know jazz isn't the only isn't the only style that's guilty of it, but yes, I guess I'd agree that they've made an art form out of the uh, extended solo. Uh, and again it's a respect i understand it takes a lot of skill to be a really good jazz musician it's just not my cup of tea mm, no well I, I i confess it is very much my cup of tea although i'm fully willing to admit that there are people out there who know a hell of a lot more about it than i do but i look i respected the fact that once again just like with the police he'd gone and m- made this merging of reggae um, with rock and here he effectively this wasn't i guess real jazz this was you know he he was using jazz musicians to make rock, and I remember um, reading or hearing an interview with him where he said that uh, I think there was like a one piece. It was an all instrumental piece, which was essentially just a little bit of a jam. Uh, there was no lyrics. It wasn't a composed piece. They just worked something out. It was a minute and a half, and uh, the field must have been you know, mighty slim pickings that year because I think it got nominated for a Grammy for best jazz piece and. I think you know, Sting said something to the effect of, you know, please don't let this piece win. You know, it's not not often that you hear a musician saying, I don't want my um, right. piece to win a Grammy, but he was praying because he thought, you know, I'd hate to sort of think that this one against 
you know, a real jazz record, uh, and you know, he, he got his wish granted. You know, I, I don't remember what ended up winning, but it wasn't the Dream of the Blue Turtle. So he was, he, he drew a sigh of breath. But he just, but he took you know great musicians like uh, Branford Marsalis, who I, I worship at the Temple of uh, Kenny Kirkland on piano, uh, Omar Hakim on drums, and Daryl Jones on bass. And I mean, Omar Hakim is you know once again it's sort of carrying on this tradition that he's had of using great drummers in his band, you know, just highly, I, mean, I don't know, maybe not highly trained, or, although I guess both, but that he is, but uh, he was someone who, who, on the record, didn't overplay, but he just took the chops that he had and made it into something really special. Um, so I, I like what he did there, uh, and with uh, sort of like some of what he did with the follow-up album, Nothing Like the Sun, uh, you mentioned Shakespeare before, and I believe that, you know, the, the title Nothing Like the Sun comes from a Shakespearean sonnet. Um, I, I liked a lot of what he did there, but then I think by the third album, it just sort of got for me a little bit dull. Um, I found it interesting you know, where he sort of went, I guess, with some of his films. There was a film called Brimstone and Treacle, and uh, if for those of you out there who listened to the podcast uh, before, know that um, I respected a lot what he did in the film Quadrophenia, which he was sort of doing, I think, in the early days of the police. Um, Dune, I thought, was a big mistake. Uh, or, or was that one that you like? No, no, I just, I like the way that you said that very politely. It was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, look, I'm, I'm not on this show to say it sucked ass, but, you know, it was, for me, it was a mistake, but, you know, it's, it's not like. Um, little old me doing a podcast in the corner of his kitchen on a Saturday night uh, is going to say say anything that's going to really worry this multi-millionaire. So, you know, I I feel better at saying, for me, it was a little bit of a mistake rather than it sucked. Uh, So, but his his third album, I don't even remember what it was. Oh, the Soul Cages. I think, right, that's where he lost me and I wasn't prepared to sort of go on the ride anymore. And I don't even know what it was that drew me to Ten Summoner's Tales, the album that we're going to talk about. But somewhere along the way, something happened. And um, Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I guess if that's probably all that we've got to say about Sting as a performer, then we might just sort of go... To another quick break, then come back and talk about the album proper. You, you okay with that? Or was there anything else that you wanted to say about Sting's work to that point? No, no. I, I'm I'm a general general fan of Sting, specific on some days. But yeah, I agree with everything you said. All right. Okay. We'll be back in uh, in a minute or two. You're listening to Love That Album. Uh, Morris here, VK over there, and we'll be back shortly. GGTMC live. For you, fresh air. Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service, breaking films down and turning them around, giving recommendations that are always on point. Visit ggtmc.com for more information. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to the trash since 1977. And we're back from break. Morris here, VK there. We're talking about Sting's album of 1993, Ten Summoner's Tales. Um, so, look, this is... I'm really glad that Sting is such a fine songwriter and he chose such great musicians 
but I'm going to get myself in a little bit of trouble here. Uh, there are going to be a couple of things that I'm going to mention that obviously show I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. This album was produced by a guy called Hugh Padgham, who'd gone and produced the final couple of police albums, Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity. And I believe that this album won, I'm not sure if it was a Grammy Award or some sort of awards for the, uh, for the best engineered album. And for me, I think that the engineering, and you know, if you listen out there or you feel otherwise, you know, feel free to write or you know, VK if you think I'm talking shit, feel free to tell me that. But the engineering or the production on this album really annoys me because it all sounds to me quite equal. There's not that much great disparity between the songs. But we can go to song-specific thing. But for me, it's the musicianship and the songwriting that really sells this album. I would um, maintain that that is the job of the engineer, to make it sound like a cohesive whole and not like a bunch of demos that you did in your bathroom. Um, this clearly was meant to be a commercial record. And if you're bringing in Hugh Padgham, who's worked with Melissa Etheridge and you know a lot of you know top 40 kind of artists and whatnot, his goal is to make something that is easy to swallow, I have a feeling, um, something you can, you know, take in a big dose. I think one of the strengths of this record is that you can listen to the whole thing all the way through and get a very cohesive feeling from it. So I'd maintain Hugh did his job. Look, I, I definitely say that this is an album that I frequently have played from start to finish as opposed to cherry picking. Uh, but I don't know, there's just something about it that really really bother me because I mean even if I didn't know what song was coming up I knew how it was going to sound and I think some of the more interesting albums I guess I'm a lot more into the lo-fi albums I mean okay you're never going to get a lo-fi album out of Sting and you're never going to get a, and he doesn't hire Hugh Padgham to give him that sort of sound but I guess even even the albums that don't go for that dirty live lo-fi sound there, there'll be something between each track that okay we'll definitely keep a common sense of purpose as you say and i have to sort of dip my hat off to you because you're as the recording artist here and you sort of know what sound you want overall but there's there's something that just made it sound in moments for me a little bit maybe bland is too strong a word but certainly too uniform there, there was no it doesn't have to be right. We've got 12 songs. I'm the producer. You're the songwriter. And they've all... I've, I've got to keep all the faders <coughs> up at this one point, right? We've got the we've got the snare drum sound. That's the snare drum sound we're going to go through for the whole album. I like to think that every song is going to... is going to you know, bring that all back and he's going to start again. And what works for one song might not necessarily work for another one. But, you know, as an artist, do you... Am I being unnecessarily cruel here? I think it was by design. I do. I mean, Ten Summoners Tales, this is, you know, obviously, it's a it's a cohesive, it, I think Sting went at this as if, you know, gather around children, I'm going to tell you some Canterbury Tales. Yes. And each of these songs is a different, so he, I almost picture when Sting had this in his mind, um, almost like he had a little, you know, medieval quartet with someone with a lute and someone with a drum around him while he told these stories. And so it was always the same musicians and always the same, you know, okay, we're going to tell this story now. So 
I think it was by design. I think that it's supposed to sound like Sting and a bunch of his buddies sitting around in, you know, a castle telling these medieval stories in the middle of, you know, whatever century. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that it's, it's what I they mean, meant. I, I think because this is an album that I've frequently gone back to, it's not like the production has, you know, completely ruined it for me and as I've also said I've played it from start to finish many times so I guess really it's it's it can't be that bad for me but I tend to attribute it more to his songwriting strength and the quality of the musicians that he uses around him although I'm probably going to shoot myself in the foot in a couple of minutes with reference to one of them but I'll, I'll defer that for a little bit so let's I want to talk about... Uh, we'll go song by song. Um, so the album starts off with If I Ever Lose My Faith In You. Previously in the police days, there was that famous trilogy, or rather it started into the police and bled into his solo career. There was Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic, Every Breath You Take, and If You Love Somebody, Set Them Free. Now, the first two were stalker songs, plain and simple, but it seemed that a lot of people didn't get it, and they were getting Every Breath You Take requested of weddings, party bands to you know to, to play at you know, their wedding oh isn't it so romantic and they missed the the point that this was a song about a guy who's you know obsessing about someone and, and, and is completely obsessed in a very unhealthy way um and so you had to write if you love somebody set them free to say okay guys oh, you, you missed the point um i'm going to write this song to show you what i really think right but i think by the time he's gotten to this album He's decided, you know what, I'm going to pull that bag of tricks out again and see where people go with it. And I, I guess I can see if people could make a convincing case to say that this song isn't a stalker song, but it's how I interpret it. And certainly if this one isn't, there are a couple of other songs on the album that I think are really quite plainly and truly stalker songs. So the song, it's... I guess in some way it's a little bit of a modern day version of Sam Cooke's What a Wonderful World and Sam Cooke's song he declares he's ignorant of all academic endeavours and he knows jack shit about anything that's important but what's really that's important for him is his love for this one woman and for that matter so is the XTC song Mayor of Simpleton Sting substitutes here lack of knowledge with lack of faith in both science and religion and as well as TV presenters and politicians. And 
How could that happen? How could you lose faith in TV presenters and politicians? But when he gets to... Oh, sorry, go on. It's so faith-provoking. I, I don't know. Indeed. Um, look, he gets to the chorus and he sings, If I ever lose my faith in you, there'd be nothing left for me to do, which... I don't know. It sounds a bit of like a lazy line, or unless, of course, he's taken in context. I've, you know, I've lost my faith in this. I've lost my faith in that. But you know, shit. If I, lo- if I ever have to lose my faith in you, well, the game is over. Um, but to me, when I hear this, it maybe I'm reading too much in this, but I, I, I get a bit of a danger alert. You know, if you live me or you hurt me, I'll die. Now I had this argument with um, uh, a friend of mine and previous co-presenter Jeff Smith while we were talking I don't remember what album it was but oh it might have been the Horrible Crows album Elsie and he said to me you've obviously never had your heart trodden on and truth be known I haven't um, but you know when song when singer-songwriters write songs about um, you know if you leave me I'm going to be absolutely miserable he says it's not about stalking it's just you know I will be miserable because you know, I've got so much tied up in you. But yep. I don't know. I, I, I see this here as, you know, please don't, don't leave me. Otherwise, I'll be completely miserable. And, I, and that sounds a bit stalkerish to me. But where do you see this? I think you've gone round the bend. Um, okay. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, let's hear your explanation. I think that it's, it's well, it's saying, you know, it's, it's, placing responsibility basically i see it as it's saying you know i don't take things lightly necessarily um that you know there have been a lot of things that have let me down and yes. you haven't done that yet so i'm just letting you know i'm putting a lot of faith in you mm-hmm. so don't use that don't don't put us at a position where i have to lose my faith in you too because i've already lost a lot look okay that's that's a that's a very strong case and you know i was I sort of thought I could go either way with, you know, do I say this, do I not say this? But I've got a couple of other songs on here, which, girly, let me tell you, he's a stalker. Um, but, you know, oh. that could go either way. But what, I guess the other thing is, I, I something I've gone and mentioned on the show before is I like it where a songwriter will confuse you a bit by having, like, a major key melody with a minor key subject or vice versa, just to really sort of throw you around a bit. And that's what I thought, you know, the, the melody here in points sounds almost heartbreaking, especially when he gets into the middle eight bit and um, the chords that uh, David Sanchez, his keyboard player, is using. It sort of really builds up the tension a little bit and you sort of, oh, I could really feel for this guy, but I don't know. I'm st- well, you, you, make a, you make a strong case, but... Just because I've gone and written the notes that he's a stalker, I'm, I'm going to go with that. going to stick to it. I'm going to stick right. with it. Um, all right. So uh, was there anything else that you wanted to make, make mention about that song? No, I think it was clearly, I mean, it's the lead-off song. I think it was meant to be a commercial success. Mm-hmm. It was meant to make enough money that we could do songs like Further Down the Line, St. Augustine and Hell. Um, you yes. need to one that pays the bills, and I think this was the bill payer. Oh, look, actually, don't get me wrong, because despite the fact that I've gone and said that I think his character is a bit of a stalker in this, I love this. I think it's a great album opener. I mean, I've always gone and said that you know, a great album should have a calling card that says, right, this is the direction I'm going to go in. And actually, technically speaking, songwriting, he goes through several places, several different places on this album. So this is not necessarily a calling card to say, right, expect more of this type of songwriting but 
um, it is an album that says, right, give me your attention, please. And it's, I think it's definitely a great album opener, um, you know, musically. And even regardless of whether it's about stalking or not, I think it's still interesting subject matter. It doesn't turn me off, the, the idea of the song. And, and, you know, commercial pop hit or not, I think it's just clever songwriting. All right, so we'll go on to track two of the album. This is uh, Love is Stronger Than Justice. the story of seven brothers We had the same father but different mothers We keep together like a family should Roaming the country for the common good It came to pass one fateful day We found ourselves down Mexico Way the town, the mayor, the PTA Bleeding on their knees with us all to stay We only stopped for a few burritos They told us of the trouble with lost banditos A poor little town in need of aid But brothers and me have never been afraid Age of chivalry, it's not dead Lonesome nights in a cowboy band To be a bride for every man Who chased away the evil gang for love This song begins the trio of songs on the album that I guess I feel a little bit ambivalent about. Um, I'm not completely sure why, but, um, well, look, let's talk present. Uh, I mean, is this a song that you particularly like? I think it's cute. Um, there are several songs on this record that are just cute. Yes. You know, this Sting showing you how, how impossibly adorable he is and how he <laughs> sense humor and whatnot. And, um, Sometimes I think it's, you know, he's given a little wink to the ladies saying, see, look how charming I am. Look how <laughs> clever. Don't you just love me? Mm. You know, Tell, have I mentioned the tantric thing? And yeah, yes, we get it, Sting. You're fabulous. We love you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's cute. It's fine. I mean, it delves into the country vein a little bit right in the middle there. And you're like, wow, all of a sudden it's a hoedown. Um, I yeah. guess what, what I like about this, uh, I, I, I mean, it's not, really a song that I've, I've cared for and this is actually one song that I have skipped a lot but when I thought I better come back to this for writing the notes for the podcast and I what I liked about it is okay so it, 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 it's a tale here you know, seven brothers run into town they're the good guys and the local mayor says uh, our town is being overrun by these banditos we want you to kill them off and you know, as your reward, we'll give you these seven. We'll give you seven beautiful women for you to marry, um, and um, you know. Uh, uh, but of course, you know the the mayor has been lying, and uh, you know what happens is um, there's only one bride for seven brothers, and of course there's a showdown. So you know we have we have a western right there, but we have like a spaghetti western on the verses. You have those sort of that twangy guitar sound. And then when it gets to the chorus, you have the hoedown that you mentioned. So it's you know, a, a reference to both the, the Italian tradition of Western and the American tradition of, of a, a Western film. Um, so I, lo- I like that contrast. And yet there's still something that's just a bit, yeah, it's cute, but not necessarily an album highlight. But, yeah. I, I, but I like the tradition of storytelling on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, all right, so... We'll go to uh, the next 
song um, Fields of Gold. say terribly much about this. I'm too biased against it, as I've heard it in played in a plethora of elevators. Although we have a local um, uh, acapella group called The Idea of North who do an absolutely gorgeous version of this song, and I think it brings justice to it. But where do you sit on this one, BK? Well, um, years ago I had a guitar player who would probably very eloquently call this your classic panty wetter. Um, <laughs> I like it. This is really, this is, this is, you know, Sting is going to croon. He's, go well, I think at, when you're at Sting's point, there's got to be at least three radio hits on a record in order to make it fiscally worth it. And this is the other one. There was, a, if I ever lose my faith in you, um, this is another one, Fields of Gold. He knew it was going to be romantic and, you know, standing there with his, you know, little wooden lute, you know, in the video and whatnot and, and weddings and all that crap again. Mm -hmm. This is the one song that I can kind of glaze over okay. during, like uh, and it feels like gold. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a it is a pretty sort of bland melody, but I, I guess if you're saying you, the, so does that happen a lot? Uh, you get people in the uh, in the recording company. I mean, we see we hear about this seed in the films, but is it just a cliche? Is it true that you get asked, look, you know, we're happy for you to make you know four or five of your weird weird shit songs but can you come up with a radio friendly hit is that the truth oh. of the industry oh my god <laughs> yeah i mean that's 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 at least it's been my experience um mm. with people that i've talked to with you know you know things that i've i've heard and whatnot that you know that's if a record company is going to put out the money they want to recoup it i mean this is a business like anything else um a record executive has very 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 little interest in your fucking art okay they have an interest in your fucking bank account <laughs> the only reason they sign anybody is because they think they can get a return nobody gets signed because an a and r person goes wow their art really moved me they like wow that art can make me some money mm. and that's of the day that's their job if they didn't do that they would be wrong but unfortunately that's why i love when people bemoan top 40 radio and they say oh well this is terrible blah blah, blah. i'm like right but you keep listening to it and that's why they keep selling it if you listen to it if you didn't buy this shit they wouldn't keep signing it but they keep signing the sure thing right now because they need to make their money because the record industry is sinking like a huge gargantuan titanic into the ocean and it's sucking shit down with it Mm -hmm. uh, look, presumably, though, if they've gone and signed bands like this, or, or like 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 any, they, it meant that they thought, right, as you said in the beginning, uh, yep, this band will make us shitloads of cash. So, is there any need to sort of reinforce that, or or do um, companies sort of get the impression that, oh no, now that we've signed them, they're going to go do some artsy shit? 
No, they never are going to allow them to do that. The record label will always have their fingers in there. They will always have their say in it. Because at this stage of the game, too, they drop people like nobody's business. They shelve artists where if you've made a record that they don't see any point in marketing, they just put it on their shelves. They don't market it. And now you have no rights to your master. Mm. And you can't put it out. You can't play it. You can't exploit it. And you are fucked. You mm. are just fucked. Um, I have a friend who's in a band um, that is in Europe and they finally got their record released but they had to have a petition basically started by their fans. They had to get hundreds of thousands of signatures and a huge outcry to get the record label to release their record because they spent a year working on it, recording it, and the record label said, oh, they just didn't get the record. They didn't get the record. They didn't think it was going to sell so they weren't going to release it. And that was it. And that's the thing. If the record label thinks they are not going to make their return, they will pull their support from behind you. They will not push it. They will not market it. And they will not pay for more. So no matter what your track record is, as they say, you're only as good as the last thing you did. And Sting is Sting, but you know what? Next record, he might not be Sting anymore. And if he's willing to shoulder the burden of the financial output for that, sure. But if he wants the record label to pony up some money, then he's got to go play their game. And that's the reality of it. But surely, you know, with certain artists who've, who've had some sort of, uh, I hate the word, but you know, bankability, they've got that track record before, uh, aren't any of the companies prepared to give them some sort of uh, clear way, say, all right, well, I, I guess we'll trust you a little bit, we'll trust that you know, the fans will follow where it is that you want to go for, for one record at least, and if that proves something, then we'll, trust, we'll keep on trusting your instinct, or, or is, that, is that fantasy? That's fantasy, my friend. <laughs> right, okay, sorry. I've, I've been watching the Hollywood movies too, Mitch. Yeah, um, from from everything that, that I've, I've seen, experienced or whatnot, it's it's more a situation of, um, sure, you can do this thing, but if it fails, you are financially responsible. Yeah. That's on you. We might drop you. And they have been, they've been dropping bands that you wouldn't, you don't even know are dropped right now because there's not a big to-do made about it. But people are running around with no label that are big, major acts just because their last record didn't sell so well. And they say, you know what? It's not worth it to keep these guys on anymore. Snip. Done. And but, so as now you, but as you've just gone and said um, you know, a couple of minutes ago with the big companies actually sinking, you know, who's shooting who in the foot? Well, exactly. And, and that's the thing. Everyone's, it's a bloodbath out here, my friend. It is a bloodbath. Yeah. You've got, um, I've got a lot of artist friends who their attitude is don't get signed because if you get signed, you're selling your soul to the devil. You know, there's that indie artist attitude of, oh, well, you can do everything on your own now. Well, no, you can't. You can't do everything on your own unless you are independently wealthy. Mm. And guess what? I'm not. Um, so it's, it's an interesting amalgam in that we still do need some of the juice that the record labels have to get the music out there, to get it to people who can hear it. I think it's, it's, the gap is closing year by year, but we are certainly not in a place yet where a, an upcoming artist or an artist who doesn't have a history of a label behind them or an independent source of income can just burst on the scene and become an international superstar. I mean, that's just not, that's not reasonable. There's a huge machine. People don't even see the machine so many times, but it's there, cranking away. Mm. Uh, uh, maybe this other thing is also fantasy. Maybe, but you know, you possibly have a better idea. I get the impression that there was a time, um, you know, in in the dim dark ages 
where a record company would nurture and they'd say, well, the first album wasn't a hit, that's okay, we have faith in you, we believe in you, or once again, is that just you know, filmic masturbation? Um, I do believe that there was a time when they were willing to put a little more into an artist. They were willing to give them a little a little more way. Um, days, the franticness with which the labels do all of their business just doesn't allow for that. But yeah, I, I think that's that's accurate to say that they they gave a little more time to someone to find their footing. They gave a little more effort. But still, I mean, it's all. I think what happens is art is an emotional thing, and mm. so wrapped up in the emotion of it and they feel like well this per they should give you a chance it's a business it's why it's called the music business mm. and people just don't understand that and it's hard as an artist sometimes to understand that it's a business you know am i marketable am i saleable well maybe i am but they don't see it you have to break it down in ways that you you're an A and R person I, I know they always say oh well they're former artists themselves yes former mm. <laughs> And if they could still be an artist, they probably would be. Um, but what they're doing is they're making their business acumen work for them within the context of a creative outlet. And so you have to explain to them the way you'd explain to a businessman that this is a good investment. Not just, hey, man, you should believe in my music. Because that's like going up and saying, hey, man, you should believe in my um, company that sells sewing machines. Because a lot of heart. Well, who fucking cares, dude? Do you make good solutions and do people want them? And that's the thing. At the end of the day, you can make the best product in the world. Do people want it? Maybe they do, but you've got to convince a label that they do. And that's the part because they want to see it. Now, now, they want to see you move something like tens of thousands of CDs on your own before they'll even talk to you. And you have to have paid for, written, made, marketed, distributed that record by yourself. Mm -hmm. By the time you've done all that, if I've sold 100,000 records, what the fuck do I need you for, man? <laughs> I'm glad I'm not in the professional side of the business. I, and I, you just want to stick your head in the sand, but you're only cutting off your nose to spite your face. You have to be aware of things and you have to just be conscious of it. And then you make your decisions. And, which I've done. I'm, I'm conscious of the business. I know what it is. But at the same time, I made the decision that I just can't base everything that I do artistically around marketability and what's going to sell. Because then it's it's not art anymore. Then it's then it's a business. And I don't want my art to become business. I would like to make my art commercially, not commercially, but more like fiscally, you know, accessible, so that I can actually not do anything else other than music. Yes. All right. Um, well, well, that was a that was a wonderful digression there. Um, that's what this show should be about. Should be about more. Um, uh, where were we? Oh, okay. So, oh, we were talking about Sting, weren't we? Yep. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, the next song on the album, uh, "Heavy Cloud, No Rain." Now this is 
probably ends the trilogy of songs that I feel completely ambivalent about. You know, this fairly stilted harmonica me- uh, melody and a fairly boring, blandly mixed drum work on this. Um, uh, although there's some good keyboard work from, work from David Sanchez, but I like, you know, got to find a positive. I like the style of song, and you know, there are a few artists who do this from time to time, where they a different story every verse. You know, that's their technique. I mean, maybe it's an academic exercise, but you know, it ends off with whatever the title of the song might be. But there's a separate story, and you're sort of interested, right? How's this one going to be linked? Um, to the to the theme of the song is is this one that you're fond of or you know it, it's okay it's okay it's it's not one of my favorites but it, i don't hate it mm. it's all right it's all right that i yeah i it it doesn't arouse a great feeling of passion about anything it's it's heavy cloud no rain mm. I, that's exactly what the song is it's heavy cloud no rain yeah yes indeed indeed all right, well, in that case, we won't spend too much more time on that. Um, we'll go to the next song, and this is probably where the album starts to pick up again for me. Uh, this is a song called She's Too Good For Me. She don't like the jokes I make. She don't like the drugs I do. She don't like the friends I got. She don't like my friends a lot. She don't like the clothes I wear. She don't like the way I stay. She don't like the tales I tell She don't like the way I smell my oh, 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 oh. The games She's too good for me She's too good for me Would she prefer it if I wash myself more often than I do? Would she prefer it if I took her to an opera or two? Okay, now, if I was drawing a fairly long bow about the stalker thing from uh, you know, it, it, the first song of the album, I really don't think that it's too long a draw in this song. Um, first of all, let's, you know, okay, musically, it runs on a sort of uh, ZZ Top Lagrange riff. Well, or something similar. Um, the music, with the exception of the middle eight, is played with you know a sense of uh, real franticness and how unbalanced I think this main character is. Uh, and you know, I love David Sanchez's um, organ work on this. I think it's just wonderful. But you know, the, the the structure of the verses for those of you who haven't heard it, you know, he's the uh, our main character singing. Uh, you know. Uh, she doesn't like you know, the clothes I wear, she doesn't like the colour of my hair, she doesn't like this about me, she doesn't like that. But I don't see this as from the perception of uh, a guy who's in a relationship and you know he's, it's not going well. I think this is the guy from the outside, he's observing her. You know, they might be he's someone who he's seen at work or someone who he's um, seen... Uh, a fellow student at university or at school, and um, really, when it gets to that like line, she don't like the way I stare. I think, bingo, we're back to the days of every little thing she does is magic, and every breath she takes. Uh, but oh, the games we play, she's too good for me. And I think his character's—he's not saying that sincerely. He's being sarcastic. Oh, she's too good for me, which means that the slight turn. 
he could turn dangerous. So I, I think there's something stalkerish in this. All right, go on. Am I right or am I wrong? I think you had a bad experience with a stalker or something. You know what? I never have. I never have. I, I just, I love stalker songs. I think that's something that you ought to do on the list. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't get that he's a stalker. I just don't. I'm sorry. Um, uh, all right, tell me, tell me where do you see? Do you see this as uh, a guy who's just got an inferiority complex, or he's just singing? Uh, where, where do you see with this? It's like the typical guy song of like, you know, this is how I am, but, you know, she doesn't like it. You know, she's too good for me. Um, and, you know, basically, I think the song is, again, oh, irascible, adorable sting. Look at him being <laughs> I mean, my mother loves this song, loves the song, and it makes her love sting more. When he says um, she doesn't like the way I smell, my mom, she laughs. and so she goes, oh, sting. I'm like, <laughs> Like, he just knows how to play the middle-aged ladies, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they, they do like the way he smells. <laughs> and it's, I do think it's, again, it's, it's you know, it's Sting just putting his tongue in his cheek and, you know, singing a clever little ditty. I don't think he's getting too deep with this one. Look, I definitely love the um, the uh, the bridge, or well, it's not really a middle-aged, well, maybe it is, uh, but the section where he drops the band and he uses I think a string section and he sings would she prefer it if I washed myself more often than I do would she prefer it if I took her to an opera or two I could dis- I could dissect myself to be the perfect man she might prefer me as I am and I, I, I mean I love those opening two lines there I do think that's very funny and yes that is Sting just being delightfully witty and clever and you know the, the string section sort of reinforces that but then it gets back into that last verse and she don't like this about me and she don't like that about me and, and it's, the music takes a very very frantic turn and yeah look sorry I'm, I'm stuck on the stalker issue I, I just that, that thing frightens me and, and as I said no, never been the victim of a stalker and I've certainly never stalked anyone but, but I, I don't know I just got the antennae up and thinking you know, this thing you're being an, you're not the messiah you're a very naughty boy yeah, I've been stalked um, several times <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that that's, what, that's why you um, that's why you have your bodyguard there exactly exactly well you know it, I, I can hide a lot I can hide pretty easily behind a computer um, but <laughs> um, yeah I, I find that stalkers usually they, they don't see any reason why you don't like them like, why don't you like them? They, they, and they give you all the reasons why you should. Whereas he was more like, you know, yeah, this is who I am. I sit on the, the couch and scratch my nuts and you should like it. <laughs> oh, sorry. You've been, you've been looking into, into uh, my land room, haven't you? <laughs> Very nice. Very classy. Yeah, thank you. I, I pride myself on my classiness. Exactly. Um, well, that's what it's all about down under, isn't it? Uh, classiness, absolutely. You... Um, you need to make your way down here and just see how classy this country really is. I'm down there. I do want to come down there. I've heard really good things. Good, good. We'll welcome you down here. No. Um, all right, we'll go to um, we'll go to the next song. This is called Seven Days. The fact is over six feet ten Might instill fear in other men But not in me The mighty free Ask if I am mouse or man The mirror squeaked away I ran He'll murder me In time for his 
Another song I really love for its lyric. I think this is um, uh, this is a it's a funny song. This is really a humorous song. Um, I'll, I'll get I'll get a little bit nerdy here. Okay, so first of all, you know, it's it's sung in five four time, which and really a, a, an unusual time signature always grabs my attention. I think given that it's called Seven Days, he you know, to be really nerdy about it, it should have been uh, written in seven four time. But I won't get too picky about that. Um, I think uh, Vinny Kolayayuta, the uh, drummer for the band, he plays here some really exciting stuff. I sort of I didn't mention this before, but I guess on the other songs, I guess I'm a little bit critical of the dynamic. You know, it seems like he's hitting that snare drum the same way every time. There seems to be less of you know pull back release, pull back release. But here, I think um, how he plays on this, it's I guess a little bit reminiscent of Stuart Copeland's reggae style from the police on this song that um, uh, I find uh, that, that really draws me to what he plays on this but look from a, from a lyric perspective here uh, I find it, it's a funny song you know, the character he's a scaredy cat um, and he's he's got this uh, he's got this interest uh, in, in, in this woman but um, you know but this other this other potential suitor is six feet ten, and he's going to kick the shit out of him. And actually, I think it's not the first time he's gone and quoted you know, the measurement of six feet ten. I think in an old police song, um, there was some girl he obsessed over, and her brother was going to kick the shit out of him, and he was six feet ten. So there must be something about that measurement. I don't know, but it's yeah. I, I like I like the humour in this, uh, the the reputation of the scaredy cat. I, I don't know that that's done often enough. Um, is this a song you find funny or more interesting? I think it's absolutely adorable. Um, it's, again, I mean, I think it's weird. I, I do like this record quite a lot, but I do think a lot of it is is designed to be very digestible. And again, this song is is very digestible. It's, it's very listenable. It's, you know... Right away, you remember it. Um, there's nothing too complicated going on. It, it goes down easy. You know what I mean? And I think that that's that's what this record is about. You know. Look, I think I think for the for a lot of the songs on this album, he he still is able to combine doing clever things and make it digestible. I mean, like you know, five four time. You know, your average punter isn't necessarily going to be interested in hearing songs in five four time or in seven four time, as in you know one or two of the other songs are. So you know, un- unusual time signatures. I can't dance to it. Nah, don't want to care about it. But I still think he proves here that you can be clever. You can make um, interesting music. Do some unusual things with the time signatures. Uh, have some, and there are some you know jazzy moments. I mean, David Sanchez is a jazz pianist essentially 
and so, so he's gone and done some really cool things like that and still made it as you say digestible and which you know coming back to our original conversation at the start of this was probably what Hugh Padgham was hired on to do so I think I, I still think he's doing some clever stuff while making it palatable to exactly uh, to and I what makes Sting um, the pretty much the genius that he is that he doesn't sacrifice his musicality but he manages to do it in such a way that it still sells records and that's really the the magical key to the kingdom as they say mm. you know if you do that well then you're you're pretty much assured a career <laughs> so he way to do that. He's found a way to do that. He came into the business at a different time. He came into the business years ago when it was, as you said, a little more, you know, willing to take chances. And now he has that background. He has that venerable sting thing going on. And he just knows how to do it. He knows how to make, he's kind of the, the George Strait of pop. You know, George Strait can crank out those country hits and we know it's going to be a number one from George Strait because he knows how to craft a country song. Yeah. And sting the same way. He knows how to make a pop song that is intelligent, that the, the smart people will like, but that is easy to listen to and that everyone enjoys. All right, so look, we'll, um, we'll go to the next song, uh, St. Augustine in Hell. Again, I mentioned about unusual time signatures, and I think he's going for the. Um, I think it's a, a seven-four feel on on this one. So once again, it's not something that would be a top forty pop hit for that, but you know, probably a, a digestible pop, uh, album track. But I, once again, I find this funny. Well, well, sorry, I find the middle bit funny, uh, and I find the rest of the story really quite absorbing this is maybe um, uh, a slight uh, variation on that early 80s top 40 hit jesse's girl but what happens here is our our character he he's lusting after his best friend's girl and um i, I guess in jesse's girl he just lusts after her and that's it but here he actually plays a move best friend finds out about him kills him and he goes to hell um, and that's it's between rick springfield and sting uh yes <laughs> That's about the only connection. Uh, you know, I had I had to find some connection. Um, well, I mean, but this is yeah, this is one of my two favourite songs on um, on the album. I mean, is this is this something that, you, that that the story took you in, or or the, oh. or, or the dialogue in the middle you found funny? What, what did you enjoy about this one? I, 
I enjoy the whole song. I do think it's 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 insufferably clever. Um, I do like the dialogue in the middle, which is always nice. I feel like musicality wise, I, you're you're definitely right. The jam sections are really nice. Um, it's it's definitely I think uh, an album highlight, for mm. real. Uh, look, I'm, I had to do a little bit of my research here because I had no idea who St. Augustine was. Um, so Wikipedia informed me that he was a philosopher and theologian in the 4th century AD. And so his thing was he'd prayed to God, begging for the strength to remain chaste, but not just yet. And Sting uses that very sentiment in the song, so hence it all makes it all makes sense why he called it Saint Augustine in Hell, and the middle bit. Now, normally I don't do this, but I, I normally just play like the one clip. But I'm going to play another clip from the song right now, and this is um, a dialogue bit. Have a listen to this. Relax, have a cigar, make yourself at home. Hell is full of high court judges, failed saints. We've got cardinals. Archbishops, barristers, certified accountants, music critics, they're all here. You're not alone. You're never alone. Not here, you're not. <laughs> okay, break's over. <laughs> Now, I just find that incredibly funny. I, 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 I love that whole thing, you know, just relax, you're here in hell. It's full of all sorts of wonderful people that you probably saw in your day-to-day life. And I, I, it makes a reference, I think, you know, high court judges, accounting music critics, and I'm sure you're probably, you know, wishing that they were all in hell. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I just overall find you know, this, this whole... Uh, David Sanchez once again is the highlight for me with that um, that really sort of soulful jazzy organ that he plays here and and a, a bit of the jam feel. Um, yeah, I, I just I just find it yeah clever uh, both lyrically and musically, and he's really gone to town. Uh, he's really gone to town on this. I mean, look, the moral of this song is uh, don't fuck around or you'll spend your life in in um, purgatory. Um, and uh, I, I really don't think that there are enough songs with that with that moral there. So, yeah, I, I think it completely works. We need more purgatory songs. Yes, we do need... Have, do you think that you guys could work out like a list? Um, ostensibly, it'd have to be 20 songs with, or maybe, you know, 17 or 18 with a couple of crossovers. Do you think you'd have enough purgatory songs to list? Oh, I don't know. That, that might be a challenge. <laughs> well, you know, I could just hear Ricardo saying, okay, guys, any of you uh, have any trouble with uh, putting this list together? And you could say, well, no, I've got one at least. Wow, you his voice like that was really frightening. You you sounded just like him for a minute there. Okay, guys, hey, hey, we're we're, we're going to talk about list. We're going to talk about purgatory songs, right? Am I right? Right. right. I'm, I'm so like your podcast stalker. So there you go. Maybe that's that's my connection to the whole stalking thing. There you go. There you go. See, he thinks the lady protested too much. <laughs> oh damn, caught up. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to yeah. confess. So we'll now talk. A little bit about um, what's for me um, another really big highlight of the album, a song called It's Probably Me. Yeah. If the night turned cold and the stars looked down and 
You'd hug yourself on the cold, cold ground You'd wake the morning in a stranger's coat But no one would you see Ask yourself Who'd watch for me My only friend Who could it be It's hard to say it I had to say it But it's probably me Now I've never seen any of the Lethal Weapons films So I believe that this comes from one of those films. I don't know the context of the song, or even if it actually has a context in the film. Have you watched the Lethal Weapons films? I think I might have seen one of them years ago when I was a kid, but I don't really remember too well. Okay, so so in the context of the film, this song has no relation to you for, for that. Um, look, I, to me, it's I, I'm, I'm a sucker for a really beautiful minor key melody which which this is and there's some um, there's some great trumpet work in this i can't remember who it is that's playing but it sounds very much like um uh this guy mark isham who's written a lot of really haunting uh trumpet music i think especially for you know he's, he's written some soundtrack work but he's also gone and done his own thing and uh, the trumpet player he really reminds me of that that style and yeah. i think it's no coincidence for me that this song follows uh, St. Augustine in Hell, because I think that the character here who's singing, once again, not make no relation to the Lethal Weapon context and whether it was written for that film or not, but I listen to this and I get the feeling that the character he's singing, you know, um, uh, if the night turned cold and the stars look down and you hug yourself in the cold, cold ground, you wake in the morning in a stranger's coat, no one could you see. You ask yourself, who'd watch for me? My only friend, who could it be? It's hard to say it. I hate to say it, but it's probably me. So my mind going wild again, but I reckon that this is the devil. It's Satan. Um, this guy, he's got, you know, his life is shit. So the only person who, the only person who could potentially look after him in a very Faustian sort of way is the devil. I'm, I'm here to look over your shoulder. You make that deal with me, you can get off the street, pal. Um, but um, once again, I, I don't know. When I'm writing in the bus and writing these notes, maybe I have too much time to think about it. But but that's that's my interpretation of it. He's, he's gone and made this pact with the devil. And I, I think regardless of you know, whether that's right or wrong, it, it still has a very cinematic feel about it, which, well, I guess if it was written for the film... I don't know, maybe it wasn't written for the film, they just dragged it in. Because uh, from what I know, the Lethal Weapon movies, while, you know, entertaining, aren't exactly, you know, heady fare. And no. uh, I can't imagine Sting sitting down and saying, yes, I'm going to write a song for Lethal Weapon. Like, no, that, <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, it's, again, that's the beauty of music, though, that what you take from it and what Sting intended could be totally two different things, but that doesn't um, legitimate or delegitimate either one. Look, I remember speaking years ago to um, to this guy. He was like a lecturer in film studies at one of the universities here in Melbourne, and he was telling me that um, he, like he he was talking to the class about uh, a Hitchcock film, and he he was giving his interpretation of you know a particular scene. And the guy said, "Has Hitchcock ever written that down? Do you know that for sure?" And he said, "Don't know. Never read anything that he's 
that he's written about it? I have no, no clue. This is my interpretation. But interpretation is about you being able to justify to some extent why you say that. He, and he, he said, look, first of all, there are some tricks that every filmmaker uses. It's, it's just a natural part of the filmmaking alphabet. But the rest is up to you, but you've got to be able to justify that. You can't just say, well, I think he's saying that just because it is. But if you have some reason because of the lighting, because of the framing, because of the context of the story, then, you know, you, if you can justify that, you don't need to have spoken to the, the director. And I, I guess, uh, you know, the same thing can be said here. And, you know, Sting might do a Ricardo and say, interesting. Interesting. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've, I've had people come up to me after I played shows and tell me, oh my gosh, that one song, it was about me and my boyfriend and it just really touched me. And it wasn't, it wasn't at all. Mm. It was about something totally and completely separate from relationships and love. But I said, great. I'm glad that, yeah, you know, because I mean, make it for, for yourself in a vacuum. So I think Sting's very happy to have you think whatever, whatever it is that, you know, butters your bread. Mm, whatever floats my boat. Exactly. Whatever other metaphors I can think of. Which I can't, so we'll carry on. Uh, but yes, that for that, um, that for me is an album highlight. Actually, so I forgot to ask what what song overall have we come across any song yet that you would say is like a you know, king of the hill for you for for this album? What what really sort of stands out amongst all the um, all the really you know, out of all the tunes on this album? If we haven't gotten to it yet. Ah, okay. Oh, good. All right. Good. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> I'm going to shut up. We're going to go to. Um, the next song, Everybody Laughed But You. Aww. Everybody laughed when I told them I wanted you, I wanted you. Everybody grinned, they humored me, they thought that someone spiked my teeth. Everybody screamed, they told the moon will be there soon. Everybody laughed till they were blue. They didn't believe my words were true. Everybody laughed you. You'll be pleased to know that I suppressed my urge to think that this was another stalker song. Um, so I won't go there but um, okay look this, this is another great tune though um, this appeals to me with it, it's a rather unusual chord structure uh, but still maintaining that sort of commercial pop feel um, uh, Dominic Miller who's the guitarist we haven't mentioned him yet um, plays a uh, uh, really creative guitar pattern I think um, uh, with uh, sort of like low, low, high note broken chords, uh, and Vinnie Kaleuta plays a, a really nice sort of hi hat snare interaction thing, which once again reminds me a little bit of uh, Stuart Copeland from The Police. Um, before I go and you know, put my notes, I, I've, I've been sort of hogging this. You know, your thoughts, VK? Well, um, interestingly enough, this song was not on the the North American release. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, in fact, I Wikipedia'd it right now, and it said yes, excluded from Canadian U.S. releases. Oh, that's so, unusual. Yeah, no, don't have so, this one. So not, so not one that you've heard. All right, well, in that case, I'll, I'll just shoot the shit about it for a minute or two. Um, 
the other thing I guess I like about this, and this is sort of um, goes through a few of the songs on the album. There's you know a couple of key modulations on this song, and what I really love about the songs that he does that on this album is they're not obvious, and where where often where a songwriter changes key in a song you can see it coming a mile away you know there's this big build up and you know all right they're going to change key to go for the big finish because he couldn't think of anything else but he he goes through you know key changes on some of these songs and this one included and until you're sort of in the midst of it before you realize, oh oh he's gone and done that and it wasn't obvious it wasn't like the same structure as the first verse uh, and here we are in the second verse, and it's just a different key. Uh, he, he's gone and done something musically different, a different melodic pattern, but he's just happened to have changed the key, but he's slid into it, and it hasn't been in an obvious way. So I really admire his craftsmanship, and I, I, I don't know whether he sort of like wrote it initially as that or whether it came up as an idea in the studio, hey, we might be able to do that, uh, change this key here just for a few bars, and it might really sound effective. But I, I really admire that sense of craftsmanship on here. Um, but um, yeah, look, this this is a song ostensibly about uh, people who've um, you know, they've, they've started at one place in their life, and they might never have achieved you know, what they set out to do, or maybe an observation of um, you know someone who had a dream, wanted to pursue it. No one actually sort of you know, believed that he could ever achieve it. And here he is looking at this other end of his life and he's gone and done what he set out to do. And um, they, you know, they might have you know, gone and taken the easy road and not, got, not pursued the dream that they, that they had because it was all too hard. And he, he, he sings up, Many years have passed and some have fallen by the way, I heard them say. Everybody dreamed but those who fell are sleeping now. They're sleeping now. Everybody climbed like ivy to the topmost branch. It was their chance. Everybody grasped till they were through. It's all they thought that they could do. More to the point, uh, the narrator here seems to take some sort of, I guess a little bit of smug satisfaction at gloating over his friends and acquaintances who laughed at him earlier on in the song. Um, but but it's still, there's something of a sinister but still beautiful chord progression here. And I, I guess, you know, if if I had the guts to sort of run past you again, the whole stalker thing, I could have said that, you know, he's a bit of a smug prat. And uh, he said, like, everyone believed in me. Uh, no one else believed in me but you, so you're all right. But I think it, 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 you could take make the case as well that it is sort of a heartfelt thing. You believed in me um, and, and, you know, no one else would, but I'm grateful to you as opposed to being too gloating over those who, who didn't. But it's... um. Yeah, a really beautiful chord progression as it sort of fades out. You hear this um, sort of gut-strung guitar uh, motif played over by Dominic Miller over the over the fade out, and it, I just the, the hairs always stand up on on my arm whenever I hear it. Really lovely stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't catch it. Well, now I want to hear it. I'm going to have to go like dig that one up. Well, I'm wondering if it's um. I mean, it'll probably be by itself on uh, on YouTube, but I can't remember if, if it's in that full one-hour length uh, video that he that he made. I think I might have sent you a link a few weeks ago. Of um, actually, I think it's net, the whole thing. Someone's just put in the last two weeks on YouTube. I think the link I sent you was to some sort of uh, so, some Russian site that had it in fairly low quality, but it was looking, I think, only earlier on this evening. 
Uh, it's all the whole thing is in high def on on YouTube. So, to, yeah. so that that song might be there. I'm a, I'll send you a link. Nice. But um, all right, so we'll go to the next song, which uh, hopefully is on the American edition of the album. A song called "Shape of My Heart." He deals the cards as a meditation. Those he plays never suspect He doesn't play for the money he wins He doesn't play for respect He deals a cause to find the answer The sacred geometry of chance The hidden law of a probable outcome The numbers lead a dance I know that the spades Are the swords of a soldier I know that the clubs Are weapons of war I know that diamonds Mean money for this art But that's not the shape of my Unlike the other ballad on the album, which was Fields of Gold, this one absolutely works for me. It's you know, this minor key melody, and you know, once again, Dominic Miller's playing is just so gorgeous on the gut-strung guitar. And you know, it, it really, like, like I mentioned before, this is another moment of the hairs raised on the arms test. That's, for me, the sign of a beautiful song. Um, you want to run with this? This is my favourite Sting song. Okay, well, like all, all, all told, I mean, not just this album. Yeah, this is. I, it's just. It's so well written. It's just so well written. Um, it's. I mean, lyrically, musically, everything about it, and it's such a haunting. Like the the production here really couldn't be better. Um, there's just so much going on. It's. It's yeah. I, I love this song. Mm. Love this. Oh, look, I'm a big fan of uh, harmonica playing of Larry Adler, um, and you know he turns up. I'm not sure how he would have been quite old at the time. I'm not even sure if he's with us anymore. But um, but yeah, there's uh, you know some some beautiful harmonica playing on this, and that's you know, part of the the raised hairs on the arms of this. Uh, I, I mean, look, I, I can't sort of speak too much lyrically about this because the whole tarot thing, I, I don't really understand it, and I gather that this is. Something about you know interpretation of tarot cards and uh, you know sings. I know that the spades are the swords of a soldier, and I know that the clubs are weapons of war. I know that diamonds mean money for this art, but that's not the shape of my heart. And I mean, I, I guess it's sort of like a, a bit of a songwriting exercise where he says, right, okay, I'm going to use the me- various meanings of these tarot cards to explain my love, but it's. Um, now you can shoot me down, and your listeners can shoot me down. But I would maintain this is not about tarot at all. Okay, go for it. Tell me what, what's your interpretation. Well, because he says he doesn't play for the money he wins. You don't win money from tarot. It's he's a poker. Uh, uh, all right. Okay. Fine. Yep. Yep. Good point. Good point. Um, um, you know the spades, the hearts, the diamonds, the clubs. That's 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 game playing cards. That's face cards. So he's sitting there counting cards. You know, life is a poker game. You have the hand dealt. But I I didn't think that like ordinary playing cards had interpretations like 
you know, this means the sword of a soldier and this means the weapons of war. But then again, I guess spades and clubs are, you know, ordinary vanilla-flavoured cards, aren't they? So, oh, well, I, I fucked that one up, didn't I? I think it's things interpretation. <laughs> but anyway, but still, yeah, uh, melodically beautiful, even if I don't really sort of get the lyric completely. But, um, but yeah, still uh, a, a lovely melody. Yeah. All right, we're getting, um, I think there's only oh, another another couple of songs. Um, so we'll cut now into Something the Boy Said. I set out on this journey There were no doubts in her mind We set our eyes to the distance We'd find what we would find We took courage from our numbers what we saw we did not fear Sometimes we glimpse a shadow falling The shadow would disappear And our thoughts kept returning There's something the boy said as we turned to go Said you'll never see our faces again We're food for a carrying crow Every step we took today, our thoughts would always stray. Wind and the moor so wide, to the words of the captain's child. Something the boy said. Something the boy said. Something the boy said. This song reminds me a little bit of uh, the police song Tea in the Sahara from Synchronicity. And I'm gathering that he took some sort of lyrical inspiration for this song from a literary source of some sort, which I gather you know, is, is probably all over the album. Uh, you know, the boy of the title is not explicitly defined except as you know, the son of some captain of an invading army who, and he has a gift of prophecy that predicts correctly that the army is going to fall. Who is this captain and his child, and how did he know, you know that this confident army would fall? Um, his, ob- his words obviously hold some weight as you know, the old confident army uh, start noticing clouds like the Dark Riders and uh, you know, questioning why they travel at all. And you know, By the final verse, sing- he sings, When I awoke this morning, the sun's uh, eye was red as blood, the stench of burning corpses, faces in the mud. Am I dead or am I living? I'm too afraid, uh, I'm afraid to care or know. I'm too afraid to look behind and at the feast of a crow. So, you know, the, we keep hearing about this feast of the crow. Obviously, you know, there's the soldiers who are going to be food for, you know, the, this crow or vulture-like bird. Um, so you know it's it's uh, it's not going to end well, and, and and surely enough it doesn't. But I'm I'm wondering if this is based on a book. Do you know? Um, I don't think it is. I think it's. I mean, it it might be. It might be based on a story or a book that Sting read. But um, I think I think Sting actually had said once. You know, it's about prediction. You know, like mm-hmm. think things are going to go bad, and then they do. Which you know, have very Sting kind of downplay it. But um. I think it, it does have a lot to do that has a lot to do with the idea of fate that, you know, it, it what's, what's going to be is going to be, even if you can't see it down the line, yes. that's just, you know, there is a, there is a fate there. And I think it's interesting that it comes right after shape of my heart, because like I said, there's a hand you're dealt. 
And okay. Yep. Yep. Good point. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I guess I sort of made the um, had the idea that it might have been based on a book because it really the the, the lyrics do read in a very literary fashion and yeah, absolutely. Um, there are, you know, I guess few lyricists out there who maybe take the time to craft um, their story so well, like he, like he does here. And it, as I said, I mean, you can, you can tell he has, um, he, even if it's not based on a particular book, um, I imagine that it's, you know, probably based on his thoughts from a whole bunch of things that he's read. And that's why he's Sting. That's why he's Gordon Sumner. Exactly. Ten Summoner's Tales. Gordon yep. Sumner. Get it though! Dearie me. Alright, we'll go to the final song on the album, Nothing About Me. serious songs i'm i'm quite happy that he chooses to end the album with this is this is a fun song it really is it's great pop um i think he you know he's probably having a dig at you know a slight dig at the media and his general public but all within a sense of fun you know he's singing you know run my name through your computer mention me in passing to your college tutor check my records check my facts check if i pay if i paid my income tax pour everything over in my cv but you'll still know nothing about me and like this if he'd chosen a different melody this could have been deadly serious and thinking oh come on sting you know give us a little bit of a break but it's the musically fun and then you get the idea that the lyrics are meant in that spirit yeah and i to be honest i think he's having a a a bit of fun with us right now that you know yes analyze this whole record Ah, he he knew that we're going to be doing this podcast years years before knew that music critics would would have by the second to last song they'd have formed their ideas they'd have their notes out they'd be scribbling their first drafts and then that song would come on and he's like hey and fuck you (laughs) (laughs) no he's he's definitely done it yep go on incredibly intelligent man i think that people don't don't really give him the due that he i mean a lot of people think that he's pompous they think he's pretentious but you know what he's earned it because there is a giant brain in sting's head i mean it's people don't even understand how hard it is to do what he does to make things accessible and intelligent at the same time is almost a herculean effort and um he he's mastered it like none other yeah for sure and uh, so uh, i mean i guess it would be fairly obvious i'd know the answer to this if i were to ask you know do you take any inspiration from him as a vocalist but um you know i have (laughs) that's so funny that you say that i can't remember which song it was now but i remember there was a song that i got all stingy on (laughs) oh really 
And just because I really liked the way he enunciated certain words, and I thought it was it was an interesting way to position things that he had done it. And I started singing something like I was singing, and all of a sudden it just kind of stuck. And I thought, huh, huh, I think this serves the song. So next thing you know. All right. Well, I think we've gone and said all that we can be bothered saying about um, uh, Ten Summoners Tales. Any sort of final thoughts on the album before we go to one more break? No, I think um, I think it's a, a really good example of what can be accomplished within the confines of the commercialized system. That you know you can you can work the system if you are very very bright and very skilled. And Sting, like I said, he's he's done that. He's managed to make himself an attractive commodity to record labels and yet still attractive to audiophiles like us who want to sit here and talk about him. All right. Well, we'll go take a, a very quick break. Actually, so after this next break, we'll be hearing from regular contributor to uh, Love That Album, uh, Eric Peterson, a.k.a. Eric Reanimator. And um, VK, you'll be very pleased to know that Eric has gone and chosen tonight's segment uh, for the show with you in mind. he um, He's going to have a little bit of a chat, a little bit of a talk about the 1986 album from Queensryche, Rage for Order. Yeah, is that an album that you like? It's not my favorite Queensryche album, but oh, well... Eric, you, you, you worked so hard to, uh, to no, dedicate no. this to VK. Oh, well, never mind. Horns up. <laughs> All right, so anyway, we'll have a, um, a bit of a break and then go to Eric's segment, and we'll come back for our farewells. You're listening to Love That Album with Morris here in Melbourne and VK over there in Los Angeles. We'll be back shortly. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now it's time for... An album I love with Eric Reanimator. that I love this time around Queensryche and their 1986 album Rage for Order like many people I discovered Queensryche via their 1990 hit Silent Lucidity but I was quickly drawn into their heavy metal cyberpunk world and they became one of my favorite bands very quickly while the better known Empire and Operation Mindcrime albums have their fans I'm a sucker for Rage for Order let's take a listen
think drew me to Queen's Reich and Rage for Order in particular was the kind of cold outsider perspective of things going wrong. The cyberpunk elements definitely spoke to me. Song titles in this album include I Dream in Infrared and Screaming in Digital, as if the cold technological age that we were on the precipice of in 1986 was something to be wary of and the disconnection and social isolation that could come about from engaging solely with technology would be a social detriment. Also, I can't help but notice that the the disenfranchisement of the youth is also an important element. I also have to make mention of vocalist Jeff Tate's voice. As a classically trained opera singer, he was not your typical heavy metal frontman. I have to admit I have not been a fan of of the records Queensryche released post about 1995. But if you go back to Rage for Order, you go back even to The Warning, Empire, and especially Operation Mindcrime, you're going to find something quite different from their contemporaries. Something that, in a lot of ways, I think, was pointing to the coming change in music where there was more substance, at least for a while. I consider Queensryche, along with King's X and Driving to Crying, to be proto-alternative bands. So I'm going to leave you now with a bit of one of my favorite tracks on the album. This is a little vampire tale called London. Catch you all on the flip side. Thanks once again, Eric, for another great An Album I Love segment, uh, talking about Queensryche's album, Rage for Order. What, what is your favourite of their albums, VK? Um, You know, it's, it's, it's Promised Land, which is I know sounds strange, especially for Queensryche purists. I mean, I love Mind Crime, I love Empire, but 
I think maybe it's because Promised Land was a specific time for me. I had gone and seen the Promised Land tour, and it was just the most amazing concert. It, uh, it to this day, it remains the best concert I've ever seen. Um, Jeff Tate is a consummate showman, and Promised Land just was really big and epic and lush and symphonic, and I like big epic and symphonic. Yes. And it, it had so much to say, and so, uh, yeah. I would say it's probably Promised Land. Okay. Ah! So you, you talked about, was it Mind Crimes that you talked about on, on a previous List Music podcast? Yep. Yep. Love that as well. Yeah. I mean, I, there's, there's very little, you know, Queensryche that I don't care for. Um, I, I'm disappointed they got rid of Jeff. I don't know how they expect to go on without Jeff. I mean, mm. we've got down to Garmo and Jeff Tate. Like, there's, it's not Queensryche anymore to me. Mm. They're dead. dead. Well, maybe they're a Queensryche cover band. I, I strongly suspect that how that's how that might go. Mm. All right, so uh, we're now at the tail end of things, and, and VK has been an absolute delight having you uh, on the show and getting to speak to you for a lengthy amount of time. Um, so what I'd like to do at this point of the show is just give a bit of a cheerio to a bunch of uh, other podcasters and shows that I like to listen to. Do you want to maybe give a bit of a shout-out to anyone first before... I run through the list. Absolutely. Um, um, the Inside Outcast um, is a great podcast as well. I've, I've appeared on there. And, um, you know, lovely people, Evil Dave and Dr. Brady Sexy Voice. Um, they're sweet. Um, I think they're friends of yours as well. And um, we have the little um, podcast triumvirate. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we're, we're the ones who always tend to put on our lists on them, uh, I guess, along with Eric as well. Uh, after after you guys have gone and done your show, right? Here's our top five, and here's our top five, and here's my top one. It's great, it's great to have other other pod friends. It's mm. it's really nice. And um, so yeah, I would say a shout out to them. Um, also to Eve's Apple, all the girls of Eve's Apple. If you're on Facebook, go look up uh, Facebook backslash Eve's Apple, and it's it, you will find a plethora of bands that you might not actually probably have not heard of that are alive and well and doing really amazing music. So I would say definitely check that out. Actually, so one question I wanted to ask you before. Um, you've gone and said that the whole Eve's Apple thing is dedicated to female metal singers all around the world. But um, if, if there were other female singers who who were out there who might be listening to this and thinking, oh, I could quite enjoy you know, the, um, the, the chatting and the Facebook company of my fellow singers, but... I'm, you know, I'm a jazz singer or a rock singer or, or something like that. You know, would they be welcome as part of this, or is this specifically a metal forum? Um, it is mostly metal. It is, it is. I will say, ninety-five percent metal, um, classical, and um, the. I mean, I account for the occasional hard rock deviation. Um, a jazz singer probably would not have much to say, just because we 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 kind of go through different things. Um, but there is, and also, you're free to come hang out on the page and see if any of the articles speak to you and whatnot. To be a member of Eve's Apple, there is an application process, mm. and there's voting involved and whatnot. So it's not something you can just hop on and be part of without, without us checking you out, without being vetted first, because we want to make sure we keep the, the professionality li- like high and you know keep things keep things at a, a good quality level so that we all do benefit from this yes uh, but yeah I would say 
if you're a, if you're a singer from a different genre, come hop over and judge for yourself. L read some of the articles, watch some of the videos, and see if you think that you would benefit from this. And and if you think you do, and you think you'd have something that you could also contribute, because we're really big into everyone contributes as part of Use Apple. Then you know, drop us a line. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay, so I'll just give a bit of a quick shout out to some of the other great podcasters out there. Um, uh, Silver and Gold, uh, they've just put out a great episode a couple of days ago covering a couple of Dario Argento films, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Suspiria, and I have a lot of fondness and affection for, uh, for those films and the films of Dario Argento in general, and Suspiria has music written by the Italian prog rock band Goblin and I'm very very excited Goblin are actually making their way to uh, Melbourne I don't know if they're touring around Australia in general but they're playing in Melbourne in a couple of months ago uh, in a couple of months ago in, in a couple of months for Melbourne Music Week so if you're local and you happen to be hearing this um, go check them out I'd seen the film Deep Red Profondo Rosso many years ago and it was like a long time before I got to see it again on uh, DVD but the music always stayed on my mind. It's very rare that I can hear a melody, not hear it for years, and then still remember it all that time. But that's how strong, how great their music was. And I don't necessarily count myself as a great prog rock fan, but Goblin were absolutely fantastic. So anyway, uh, that's uh, the couple of films that Silver and Gold covered this week. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, who are about to release their 200th episode. So um, if you're uh, listening to this, search them out the GGTMC episode 200 quite a feat guys at episode 29 I'm a long way to go before that but never mind my, my good friend Terry Frost over at the Paleo Cinema Podcast and the Martian Drive-In Podcast Better in the Dark sitting in a bar in Adelaide uh, featuring my good friend Michael Persh over there in Adelaide and we'll probably have him back on the show in a, in a, a couple of episodes or so uh, the Mondo Video podcast Justin Bozong has just gone and released episode two after so many months of the Jerry Lewis specials that he's covering the inside outcast as you mentioned once again uh something called what's this the list film podcast you heard of that one I really do I think they're hacks yeah they're hacks who knows man and and what what is this with Ricardo can't he get the fucking name right every week write to us at the list film podcast when he's talking on the list music podcast yeah come on get your act Get your act together, Ricardo. What's going on? The Clint Eastwood boat right now. You know, the the charming, befuddled man. Like, oh, golly. It's, <laughs> we, still, we still love him. Oh, good. Yeah, well, you should. So you should. I mean, you know, from from a purely you know platonic listenership point of thing, we love him too. Good, yeah. Another one just came to mind. All-time top 10. Now, this is another... It's a sort of show very similar to the List Music podcast. I, I guess they don't go through... The whole uh, digression of, well, you know, talking about the song and then talking about a personal experience in your life as that song triggers off. It's more about the songs, but it's a list-type podcast hosted by a guy called Ben Eisen. All-time top ten. I think he's out of Los Angeles as well. Really? Okay. Um, and yeah, that and that's a really cool show too. Uh, give give them a listen uh, as well. Dig Me Out is a new show that I, well, it's not new. It's been around for a while, but I've only just discovered it. And this is. Also, a show not too dissimilar to my own, uh, but I, I guess less emphasis on song-by-song song lyricism. They talk about the album as a whole, and they concentrate only on albums of the 90s and 
more, I guess, what they call forgotten albums, hence Dig Me Out. And I'm really enjoying that. They're, they're, they're fantastic. And uh, I've, I've listened to um, a few of their shows now. So um, search them out there. I think up to episode 80-something. So um, not too far from the 100 mark. They're a weekly podcast. So a lot of fun that they are too. Uh, the List Music podcast, of, of course, with your good self and um, your comrades, Ricardo, Juan and Jenny. And I think I've got all that covered off I think I I think I do so if I've gone and forgotten you and you're listening to this write me and tell me that I've been out of order and I haven't I haven't said haven't mentioned you I'll mention you next time but you know I love you all out there anyway don't you all you all my fellow podcasters and uh, I think that pretty much covers it VK anything more you wish to add before we sign off I think that's that yeah I think you've covered it pretty nicely (laughs) oh good good all right. Well, uh, thanks once again, um, listeners out there, for downloading this episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with uh, Tim Merrill, who is um, uh, he was on the last episode, shooting the shit, and really he, he's he's fantastic. You know, Canadian guy who knows probably more about Australian music than I do, which is quite embarrassing. But this is this guy is a music fanatic, and we'll be talking about the Texton and Charlie album, All Is Forgiven. And I'm really, really excited about that one. It's I don't have terribly many people that I associate with who are big fans of Texton and Charlie and imagine, to my amazement, that this Canadian guy, the other side of the world, not only has heard of them, but is an absolute fanatic for their album. So I'm looking forward to talking with him about that particular record. Uh, so... Um, yeah, thanks for listening, and once again, my full-on gratitude to you, VK. I hope this is not the last time that uh, you come on the show. I'd love to have you and the rest of the crew on again. Well, thank you. Lovely to be. And uh, please, uh, yeah, if uh, once the uh, Vita Nova project gets officially released, I'll um, I'll be looking to uh, play some tracks off of that and uh, yep. pl- plug the shit out of it. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. All right. Be well, and uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Love That Album. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.